Hello and welcome to the Evolve podcast, hosted by me, Simon Bocco, where I interview successful people who talk openly and honestly about the journey they've been on to become the person they are today, sharing stories, insights, tips and anecdotes along the way. It's a great opportunity to learn from entrepreneurs, business leaders, creatives and technologists who've all taken very different paths to success. So welcome to another episode of the Evolve podcast. Uh, today I'm actually joined uh, from Ashley Polak, who's in Ibiza, making me very jealous. Obviously on the podcast, you can't see his location where he's currently sitting, but it looks like a very nice port or something really nice as, as uh, I'm in a, a very small box in the UK. Uh, welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I've got some blue sky behind me. It's actually because uh, uh, my son's having a play date at home, so um, I've escaped out in the open air, which is one of the joys of being somewhere where you can actually be outside on a phone call at this time of year. Yeah, it's tough. Your, your son's having a play date and you're out in uh, lovely sunshine sitting <laughs> on some water somewhere. I think uh, when my daughter has a play date, I'm, I'm sort of vanished off somewhere else. But um, I, think, I think really, really um, happy to have you on today. I'm really interested. I think you've had a fantastic journey uh, and we'll kind of talk about this later, but everything from kind of working from cybersecurity business, M&S, advertising, BBC, video agency, as mentorship. But I think the place I really wanted to start actually was around uh, Doorstep Gardener, which is your business now, because I think yeah. by the sounds of it, it makes some fairly large and quite fundamental changes as a result of the pandemic. And it'd be really yeah. interesting, if we may, kind of start on your journey in terms of, of how that business came about and also, I think, by the sounds of it, the life changes you've made and the things around your life that, that have enabled that to happen. Yeah, sure. Happy to talk about it. So, yeah, the pandemic, I feel very lucky uh, that for myself and my family, the pandemic has really been transformative for us as a family, both in terms of work and where we live. So that time in Ibiza, uh, that's as a result of the pandemic. We, um, at a certain point, weren't sure about where our income was going to come from. And so we decided to rent our house in London and make a move out here for the winter. And that was 15 months ago. My son's now in his second year of school here. So we made a, a definitely a, a shift, um, I guess a physiological shift around where we lived and how we live. But the, the gardening business came out of, it was really a reactive lockdown startup. So I have run a, um, a video, a, a creative agency, predominantly focused on video, but working a bit broader on films and campaigns. I've done that for the last 10, 15 years. And when COVID came, our business was mothballed pretty much immediately. I was in the middle of a documentary when it all kicked off, which I had to finish in my house, um, being a bit <laughs> sort of uh, uh, inventive in, in, in being able to film in a very limited area. We managed to finish that off. And then we were doing five, six projects a, a month. And that, that went down to two in a whole year, I think. And so I was reflecting on what could we do? And the, the natural first response was, where's video shifting to? And there was clearly going to be a massive shift to live video. But I didn't have any interest in live video. Just because I'd spent my career in video didn't mean that live video was the next thing for me. And so I started to think about what, what do people need at this point? And a couple of things happened. Number one, a cinematographer who worked for me had started delivering fruit and veg in Peckham just for something to do, roll your sleeves up. And um, he was getting busier each week. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And then I think probably the listeners of this podcast will remember that there was this particular moment where everyone was super engaged with their community. 
And we had a street WhatsApp group already set up, but it got more and more involved and more people were sharing stuff on it. And someone shared a post of someone that was delivering plants. And I looked at their site and was just really uninspired. It was it sort of, to me, seemed to be taking advantage of the situation. It was like, you want plants, we'll get you some plants. We won't be able to tell you what they are. Be grateful. We'll donate a bit of money to charity. There we go. And my wife had been the former head of marketing at Wyville Garden Centres and a good friend of mine was a horticulturalist. And I thought, I think we can do something here. I think there's an opportunity. I think we can do this better. And so that was Tuesday. Talked to my wife, caught up with Jonathan, asked where these plants were that were going to go to waste because garden centres were closed. We set up a website on Squarespace, not an ad for Squarespace, but the joys of Squarespace means you can do things quickly. So we did a website in two days. Um, launched on the Saturday morning and just by sharing street WhatsApp messages, Facebook messages, we had 240 orders within 48 hours and then wow. uh, had to catch up with the reality of what that business <laughs> was going to entail, <laughs> which we hadn't kind of planned ahead for, but we quickly got up to speed on. So yeah, super exciting, uh, kind of crazy, but really fun. So I think it's a roller coaster, really, because I think one of the things that I really struggle with, and I've had many people affected by the pandemic in terms of it's been out of your control. You know, if, if you've run a business that's been struggling for a while and, and you might not have product fit or you haven't got traction, and I think that's kind of one thing. But it's like you say, to almost the tap get turned off seemingly overnight of no doing of your own. You know, that is a thing that nobody expected, nobody planned for, no one had that in their forecast. How did that make you feel to have that? that kind of sudden out of your control change that wasn't you know, for the negative? Uh, to be honest, for me, and I know, again, a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, had the opposite effect on them. But for me, it was liberating because for years I'd been running an agency and I was starting to get a bit disillusioned with it. I built up my reputation. I mean, we've done projects for the British Museum, the Design Council, lastminute.com, M&S. So we got a really good reputation, but I was getting a bit tired with the kind of value that I was getting from my creative input. It was like I delivered these projects, I handed them over, and then the long-term value is I can show a film to my son in 10 years' time and be proud of something I did. But I wasn't, to me, it didn't feel like I was building something. And so I'd already started thinking about that a year before COVID, and that's why I got involved in co-founding a cybersecurity startup, a friend that was his area of expertise, and I, I'm sort of the marketing story guy, and we got together and set this thing up, CyberLum. And so I'd already dipped my toe, and so, yeah, I found it quite liberating just suddenly, right, okay, I need to make a decision now. And that was quite exciting to me, and, and after the successes of doorstep garden initially i mean we did like 900 odd deliveries in eight weeks we had six drivers we recruited all these people worked out the golf club car park um but then when that quietened down because the gardening season is march to june really july the next move that we made moving to ibiza again that was sort of fairly simple and logical it wasn't scary um so yeah i feel very privileged that to me it was it was liberating and the person who was delivering the veg that you spotted obviously becoming more successful, was that an inspiration on, on, on more than one level? So obviously that you, you spotted there's a good business there, there's something that people need, but by the sounds of it, the person doing that was reinventing themselves and doing something different as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've lived an existence that in some way has been hand to mouth, right? The agency world going from one project to another. So I'm used to unpredictability and not knowing what's coming next. 
so yeah, that was that was an inspiration. I I think for me, because my life has has turned around now. Um, we did this reactive lockdown startup, but then to me, what's more interesting is what happened in our second year of business. So second year of business, things have opened up, but then Brexit hits in and our business model, even if we'd wanted to continue doing it, was completely disrupted by uh, supply chain issues with plants coming from Europe, prices going up, quality going down. And so we realized straight away that I mean, I guess my initial impression was, wasn't it good while it lasted? That, that was fun and brilliant. I did something during the pandemic. But then when I dug in a bit deeper, I was like, actually, gardening is such a beautiful area to work in. The customers are lovely. People love their gardens. They want to. It's, it's a very emotive um, area of business to be in. And I wanted to do something more of it. We did, the three of us. And so we started to explore, like, what could we turn this into? And so... Yeah, in our second year, that's what we've been doing this year is a pivot from being a, a delivery business to being a, a digital platform and really digging into what are the problems that people, homeowners are facing with their gardens and how can we use technology to solve that. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of people to be inspired by definitely during that time. And I've, um, I've kind of run with it, I guess we have. And I think the thing that's interesting is, as we were speaking before we went on, you're in there kind of accelerator seed community and obviously things are moving quite quickly and I, th- I think that's something that for so many people it gets thrown around so much you know it's I'm in an accelerator go get some seed funding whatever but I think there's actually from my own personal experience a lack of knowledge about what that actually entails when you get in that machine so I think it'd be really interesting to understand obviously you've had a business that you know it's got traction it's going well uh, you're, you're starting to move to a technology platform and you've you've kind of joined that now uh, talk us through that process and, and you know in a quite practical level what that actually entails and what you do and what the net benefit of that is and, that, and being part of that machine yeah I mean we've been on three programs we ended up on them we ended up on them concurrently, which is a bit mad. So um, Justine, my, my wife and one of my co-founders took ownership of a, a process we went through with an organization called Seed Ready. But we've also just come off the back of a Virgin Startup Step Up program. And we're also on an artificial intelligence accelerator all at the same time. I think the main takeaway I have from, from doing all of these things is there is some amazing three free There are some amazing free resources available to entrepreneurs and lap them up. (laughs) I mean, Peltari and the Artificial Intelligence Accelerator that we're on, we've basically done a six-week course that's cost us no money and we have a working prototype out of this program. It costs us nothing. So I think a lot of startups in in this sphere, they're kind of thinking, well, how can I raise money? Is this pre-seed? Is it seed? It's like try and do as much as you can for nothing. <laughs> like if you can get people along on the journey because they're passionate about what you're doing and, and build a team that way, sweat equity, I guess, then great. If there's resources and accelerators you can go on that will get you moving forward towards proving your value proposition and building an audience and building customers, great. Um, so yeah, the, these, the seed ready process we've been through has really helped us to interrogate what we're doing, why we're doing it and researching with customers. The AI uh, accelerator has given us this working prototype and Virgin really connected us with some amazing mentors and advisors to help us move forward. And now we're seeking funding. So we're, 
currently in conversations with investors and we're aiming to get this in place to get going first thing in year. So I've got a tight deadline, but we're raising pre-seed funding to build what we need to build to make a success of this. We're not just raising money because we're raising this amount of money, which is going to be spent in this way. And I think often I hear people talk about, oh, yeah, I want to raise as much money as possible, but without really thinking through what they're spending it on. Because ideally, <laughs> you would not get any investment. You just have customers that love what you do. You'd kind of prototype it. You'd do it in a basic way. You do it handmade. And then the customers would fund the development of the future of the business. Um, that's the ideal, but we need a bit of a jet propulsion. And that's what we're working on at the moment. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Something I often talk about is it's almost like the default choice. Like I'm going to build some technology and I need to raise some money as opposed to I need to build some technology. Let's have a minimal viable product, get some customers and maybe you'll never need any money. Or if you do, like you say, it's a, it's a, for a scale up proposition, which is like, I need to get moving. I need to get moving quicker. And I almost need that inorganic growth that comes from money. Um, yes. and I, the, the other and I, thing I was going to say on that point, sorry to cut in is there is something that has gone on for me, I imagine for other founders, that you're trying to get up to speed with what on earth pre-seed, seeds, SEIS, EIS, there's all these terms and you're trying to get up to speed on something um, at the same time as, as building and moving your business forwards. And so I think that's where some of this challenge comes is people almost get a bit distracted by it. Um, and I feel now that I understand what pre-seed, seed and means because I understand my business better. It's that way around. And I think yeah. some people just dig in and go, oh, yes, this is, we're going for our Series A next year. And da, da, da. it's all a little bit meaningless. The other thing, interesting thing is, is to get your perspective on, obviously, you've seen that technology is going to play a key part in, in the business's growth. And I think the, the, the hardest thing, and something, obviously, you're, you're in Ibiza now, but originally lived in, in London, that the UK struggles with is scale-ups. You know, so we, we've got lots of businesses that are successful, but I think I can't remember the numbers now, but the number of unicorns in America and so on versus there are in the UK, there's, there's plenty. And, and one of the things from speaking to clients is around the ability to raise the right kind of capital. And also, I think what's interesting is, again, from previous experience, a less appetite for risk. For some reason, the US will go... I got big belief in this business. You're in a market; it's going to go bonkers. I'll put some money in. Where again, it'd be interesting to get your steer in terms of that that investment process. In terms of, you know, what do people want to see? You know, how, how much is someone willing to take risk? Are you finding partner investors that have had a similar type business, or what? What, what have you kind of found when going to the market? I think there's your your views as a founder or as a founder team. I mean, I believe in sustainable growth, not not scaling just because. I mean. <laughs> I enjoy as much as I think many founders watching slide beans videos and some of the stuff you get on YouTube. And there are so many examples of very good startups that just burnt themselves out, got huge funding and just burnt themselves out. And so I don't want a business like that. I want a business that lasts and grows to the future. So I aspire to be like a Patagonia type brand that has scaled and done well and then made the right decisions ethically as a business in its scaling. I guess the other thing is I've mentored and advised a few businesses and I've, 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 um, I've been involved in a couple that were American-based. And so that was interesting to see American founder teams and how they talked about figures and money and the money they're going to raise and how big they're going to be. So I haven't, I think maybe I suit the European style of funding 
because I want to have, I have a bold vision of what we're going to achieve. And I, our business at the moment is focused or will be focused in this new pivot on the UK, but I believe there's a big opportunity in Europe and I see an opportunity in America. Um, and I realize that we will need funding to get us up that scaling journey, but I, I'm not too distracted by unicorn status. I'm more like, how do we get lots of customers who love what we're doing and pay us decent money for it? And, and so we're, we're a sustaining business even without funding. Yeah, great. I think that's really good to hear. And again, something that, that's so so often missed now. I remember saying to people, what's wrong with just getting some customers? You know, <laughs> like you say, what's problem? Getting people to buy and build some advocacy, you know, have a strong client base. I mean, it's funny right now because we could do our business with no funding right now, but it would be handmade and it would only be able to be a lifestyle business because we need a system, a platform to scale from. And so I think as co-founders, we all agreed that that we, we don't want to do a lifestyle business. We do want to do something that scale, scales and that does require some financial backing. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's fine to be somewhere in the middle between a kind of, you know, a cottage industry kind of setup and a, and the next uh, Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what's interesting for me as well in terms of kind of a journey and how you got here. So I think creativity is something that comes through in so many ways, but not necessarily creativity is in making something beautiful that goes on a screen or, or, or on a piece of paper, but actually almost like creative living. And I think that, that there's a I kind of pick up sort of like an ethos, you know, around that. And like you said, it's of no surprise to me that you want to be a Patagonia rather than an Amazon or, you know, or, or similar. So, so talk to me about that kind of journey and, and how this element of creativity has played a, a role in your life and, and perhaps some of your previous experiences and what that entails. Because again, talking to lots of people in the podcast, it's so organic. It's like some of it's planned, but some of it just comes out of nowhere, you know, it, and it's, and I think it's something very interesting in terms of almost how you live your life and how you do things if you're quite, um, again, Patagonia is a really good example of that. Like if you're quite bold about that and quite upfront about that, as a result, you tend to attract people who have the same ilk that you are, and then you then naturally create opportunities. So it'd be interesting if you talk to us about, there's a lot of that I recognise, but you know that kind of journey and how that kind of came about. Yeah, I mean, the, the, going back to the Patagonia example, the reason I mentioned Patagonia specifically was on the Virgin course they mentioned about um, Eve. I've forgotten his surname's book, and I've just been reading it. And um, I think what's interesting with Patagonia is he was a climber. He loved the thing that he ended up selling, but they were actually having quite a bad net effect on the planet. He hadn't thought about it at all. He wasn't perfect from the beginning but he lived his life and he brought people together and he realized these things as he went along that I found very inspiring. So it's not like you need to be morally, ethically perfect from the, from the off. Yeah. It's just kind of going through life, kind of observing and making the right decisions. The other thing I'd say is, yeah, my life hasn't been formulaic. I've got a five-year-old now. I'm not sure I'd advocate that he follows my journey because to me, the flip side of that is, I haven't had security at all times, right? In some ways, I kind of wish I, I had been able to do a career and put the, put the years in with the company, and, which is more what my wife did, to be honest. So I'm kind of lucky that between the two of us, we've got some balance there. But um, I take a little bit of, um, what's the word? The word creativity, I think it's really important to be careful with the word creativity because to me, anyone can be creative, anyone. It's not ownable by creatives. I think craftsmanship is different. 
I think as a filmmaker, I've done my 10,000 hours. I, I, I'm pretty confident I can make something that other people can't make because of my expertise. Or a, you know, a carpenter who's done their craft and they just, they can put, that's different. But creativity, um, I think, is, is not ownable by the creative community. I think anyone can be creative. I think the most creative thing, look at this gardening one, is just, just being open to observing what's going on in the world and keeping your ears open and just being open to experiences. I think that's where Dorset Gardener came from. And if I go back in my career, it's where my video company came from because I, um, I started my career in advertising, spent two years applying for grad schemes and got a job, like 800 applications, three places kind of job hated it the moment I started. In fact, I waited a year for it to start because I, I, it was after I'd graduated. So I did another job and then I started. I hated it the day I started. I just, I just didn't like it. And I lasted like eight months, nine months. So I spent all this time trying to get a grad job and then I left. And then I was just doing bits and pieces of some copywriting. I was doing some photography. Then I started working as a camera assistant for a BBC cameraman. But the cerebral bit of my brain wasn't really being clicked. I loved camera work, but it, I just missed something for me. And completely randomly, and this is that openness, <laughs> someone said that um, M&S was a nice place to work. And um, it doesn't say this on my CV, so I feel a bit open on this forum, being honest, but let's be honest. Um, I, I applied for a temp job with M&S. I just needed a bit of extra work. And I went into an office angels and said, I'm looking for a part-time job. I hear M&S is a nice place to work. And they said, we don't get part-time jobs. But then a few months later, they rang me up and there was this job, sounded really random, turned out to be this confidential sort of internal startup project within M&S randomly. And I got hired to be a, a PA, really. I was rubbish at that, but the guy who hired me saw that I was good at some other stuff and then got me working on that instead, which was research and, and putting together proposals. And, and then that led to Etio because I got asked to work on a project on corporate responsibility and I read through all their annual reports and I picked up the phone to the head of marketing, the head of internal comms. I was like, why aren't you doing content about this? This stuff is incredible. Why aren't you doing films? And I basically pitched let me bring in the team and we'll research and we'll pull some stuff together and then that was that was etio so yeah i think creativity to me is not about i am a creative person it's about an openness a receptiveness to the world and just observing and picking up on these things and being prepared to take a risk and go in a direction that's unexpected I think, but interestingly, the people around you were, as a question you kind of brought around, were also open. You know, there's someone who, who comes in as a temp, does something, they're not very good at it, but you're good at something else and they point you somewhere else. And then after they point you at a research job, you pitch them a video and they buy a video. Do you know what I mean? I think you, you've got to have that, an openness in thinking, a trust in your own judgment. And so, do you know what I mean? I think that's, and that isn't everyone. And, you know, there's a lot of places that would have shut that down and said, yeah. you're no good at what you've hired you to do. You're only a temp. You're on one week's notice. See you later. And it gone no further, yeah. you know, or likewise, yeah. Yeah. you move to the next job and then and you pitch them a video and say, since when do you do video? I need you to get on the internet. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so it's interesting that, that you sort of found yourself in those environments. But, but the other, the flip side of that is, I did that job at M&S and then M&S went through a bit of a challenging time and they, they stopped the project. So we, we got paid to do like months of research and then we didn't actually make anything. And I tried to get a job. And what was really hard at that point, and I nearly gave up, was um, I knew what I wanted to do, storytelling around brands, and, but that didn't really exist as a job yet. 
And then I went to, um, I forget the name of the company, the kind of creative recruiter. And I explained what I had done at M&S and they were like, how were you doing that? And, and they, 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 it just didn't fit. And so I, I then for like two, three years after that, I couldn't get a job. And I actually went back to study graphic design because I was like, I can't see the job I'm trying to apply for. <laughs> um, but I know I had done some graphic design. I know that's a job. And then luckily I went to study at the London College of Printing. And when I was there, I got my first break that got me into video. So again, a, a bit of resilience. I, I think I've been fairly resilient because, yeah, taking the path less traveled is challenging and, and you don't, it's not always clear what the right direction is. You've just got to keep moving forward with, with sort of positivity, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think from my understanding, you're working on some documentaries. And again, from, again, from my personal experience, I find them so difficult to make a documentary. Like for someone who, you know, you do short ads and, and you might do some longer form video, but a documentary is such, there's a, such a craft to it in terms of what message you want to portray and how you want to show something. And, you know, so I've got real admiration for people to make a documentary. I think there's lots of people that go, oh, I've got, I've got a, a nice uh, Canon 4D. I'm going to do a documentary. And they're, they're quite kind of sort of frivolous about this. But it's, it's, in my mind, very, very difficult from understanding this process. So talk to me about that side of things. Like, you know, it's a really obvious question, but how does one make a very good documentary? You know, and what goes into that? What's funny is the film I am most proud that I've ever, ever made was the second to last project before COVID hit, um, which was the Design Council. We did a campaign for them. It was more than films. I worked with a very talented copywriter for years, Julian, and he, he was instrumental in it. So we came up with this campaign, which was whatever the question, design has an answer. And then we found these stories that would bring this to life. And so we did a film about Leicester hospital about their A&E department and we did a film about Amble which is a little town in Northumbria which had used I mean within the design industry you'd call it design thinking but it was about the community coming together to rethink the future of the town and um, I think um, <laughs> documentaries which has always been a passion of mine and we do we have done cinema ads and animations and all sorts but documentary I think is about what is all in the pre-production and building relationships. And yeah. so that film, the reason I'm most proud about it specifically is David is one of the characters in the film and we just got to know him. And um, <laughs> maybe one of my afflictions running a creative agency and why I never made lots of money doing it is um, the client budget covered a two person crew for three days. And I took a three person crew for five days because I was like, I really think there's a good story here. And so we just spent time getting to know the community and immersing ourselves in, in that community. And it means that the conclusion of that film, which I'll send to you, maybe you'll share the link, is quite emotive because we had a relationship. So um, yeah, build relationships. And the main thing with filming, my main bit of advice, and you did it on this podcast, is it's very easy to think, right, I need to run straight in and put a camera in someone's face. But actually, whenever I'm directing something, I spend more time talking to the person, sitting next to them with no camera, making notes. And what's annoying is they'll say stuff that you're like, oh, I'd love to have got that on camera. But that's beside the point. What you're doing is building a relationship, building, building up um, trust, building up someone feeling secure with you. And then that, that yeah. brings out really honest answers. And being conversational, not just going, right, question one, 
I mean, you're doing it well on this podcast. You're listening to what I'm saying, and that's inferring upon the next question that you ask. And I, I often see a lot of films where they're like, okay, that's really interesting. Right, thank you. Now something completely different. <laughs> if you, it's, it's a conversation. Uh, you know, look at Parkinson or those kind of great interviewers. That's how they interview. Uh, and I, I hopefully learned something about that. And, and maybe, you know, I got good at making films. And of course, Dorset Gardner are going to do the best films ever made. <laughs> but, um, but hopefully that ability to build relationships, to really dig in and understand people is helping me as an entrepreneur now, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's lots of it, isn't there? there there's, there's building instant rapport. There's, there's keeping people at ease because, you know, there'll be lots of people that, that well, no, well, no one, you've shoved a camera in their face and put a bright light in their face and said, right, talk to me, which is really difficult. And also, obviously, the art of storytelling, you know, it's, it's so, so fundamental to everything. And to bring those skills together, again, this is the openness, right? So no one would see those as transferable, but they're all transferable skills, you know. Yeah. The other thing as well, and a little bit of advice and why I love podcasts and audio, I've started doing some audio journaling stuff on LinkedIn, is cameras are intimidating. And the last documentary I did for the Royal College of Art, I took a bit of a gamble and it, <laughs> it was difficult to do. But basically all of the interviews were audio interviews. I didn't film any of the interviews. It was audio interviews okay. with cutaways. And that I did that for various reasons, but but it it gives a real honesty and naturalness to 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 a film. Um, whereas when you shove a camera in some place, some people are, are really good at that. They thrive under that and other people clam up and 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 the opposite thing happens. So uh, audio I think is very powerful. Agreed. And uh interesting thing for me is you casually mentioned before we came on that you're on a place in the sun, which I know I get a lot of people <laughs> listening in the US, they won't understand what that is, but um it's a it's a B, I think it's a BBC program from memory and you're, you're saying where they help you find a house in the sun in a sunnier climate, right, isn't it? Yeah, it's also the I think the cheapest TV that, that they produce <laughs> in the UK because our show has been on TV, I think, sixteen times now. Um, Are you get so, royalties like that every week, getting a nice envelope get through the post. I do get people on aeroplanes when we're coming over here. We had a lovely thing. We went to a market and someone came up and said she was called Deirdre or something brilliant like that. Deirdre and Jeffrey or something. Jeffrey, it's them. It's them. I told you it's them. So uh, that's uh, that's been uh, rather lovely. I mean, uh, that's an interesting one because we didn't buy the house that was on the show. The story of how we actually got a house was much more interesting than the TV show. So maybe there's a thing in there about formulas for producing things and how actually dig under the skin and there's probably a deeper, more compelling story going on than may at first appear. Yeah, because I think what's quite interesting is a person who makes documentaries is in probably the, the poorest man's of poor man's documentaries, you know, because it is kind of that. It's like a live story in terms of in a very yeah. short, short window about you, you kind of going on a journey and buying a house. So how is it to be on, on the other side of the camera and someone almost building a story that you were part of? How did that work? I remember um, at the time we were adopting and uh, the director really leaned in on that and uh, I think the question she asked the most was, how, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? Do, and um, it's quite a, a, a frustrating way to look at properties because you go into a room in the house and they're like, how do you feel about the house? Like, I've only been in the living room. How can I tell you how I feel about the house? It was a bit, um, I assumed that they do those programs in like a long weekend, but it was five days of filming, four hours in every house. So wow. um, I got a bit bored. I started putting Beatles lyrics in 
I was like, right, how many Beatles songs can I get in my responses? And um, there's none in the final programs. So that shows how much footage they filmed. So, uh, but hey, look. Maybe, it's maybe they stiffed out what you were doing and thought, oh, this Ashley guy's putting another Beatles reference and the editor's <laughs> getting his scissors out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's lovely to see how people put things together and um, nice to be on the other side of, other side of, the, of the coin. I mean, I, I did. I was a film extra when I was at university, so I've done it a little bit. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and in terms of uni, then, so I, I've again looking at you went to Ravensbourne College, a really well respected place for uh, design and, and and kind of creativity. Yeah, <laughs> years years later, I ended up going back to a uh, startup incubator there for two years that was funded by the EU, which was incredible. I actually dropped out of art college. Because <laughs> I, I ten pounds every time I've met somebody dropped out of our college, I'll be quite rich. <laughs> well, I went off to do a ski season. Uh, the reason why was because my art teacher was incredible, and I think my my A level art was like a foundation art degree. We really interrogated. I ended up doing an installation. Um, I did performance art with my friend Julian, the copywriter I told you about. We studied together, and so it was very exploratory. And so when I went to Ravensbourne, it was fantastic. But I kind of already knew what I wanted to do. So I did, I think, two terms. And then I was like, I know what I'm going to apply for. And, and, um, and then I went off and did some skiing. But yeah, I did that. And then I went to Screen Academy. Well, what's now called Screen Academy Scotland. At the time, it was Napier University's film and photography course. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to explore stuff. And that gave me a nice framework to kind of go in a direction. And I suppose... You know, I did end up doing something that was related to my course, so that's uh, <laughs> that's something, I suppose. And are you are you mentoring people now from from that kind of background, or are you working with businesses in terms of film? So you say, obviously, you, you, I know you you kind of work with lots of people from a, a mentoring perspective, and it feels like there's something yes. that is hugely missing, which is around, especially in the creative industries. You come out of university, and, it, and it's kind of a bit bit lost. There's lots of ways to go, and I think as as the markets change so much now, that there was almost and, and I'm speaking for you here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but some kind of some, some predisposed paths that you could go down if you went to a, an art college or creative college, where now I think the world's opened up much further and people have recognised the importance of creativity in many ways. And so it's almost a bit kind of much more daunting. So I just wondered if, if that's something that, you, that you're still connected with or if not, you know, if someone is, is going through that journey, what advice you might give them? Yeah, I mean, I've always been um, keen on advising mentoring i mean i think that the joy of mentoring and advising and guiding is it's a fulfilling thing like i'm not doing it because i get nothing out of it it it, it makes me feel good uh, being able to help people in some way but i um i was always and have always been on the search for fresh talent new talent people who haven't had a break yet it amazes me within the creative sector how for example the composer that i worked with a lot tom he was a runner in an audio post house for a year when he graduated from, from Ravensbourne, actually. And um, he told me that the most creative thing he did was change a light bulb. And I just don't understand <laughs> what that. What a waste why of talent. You, yeah, why, what a waste of talent. Why wouldn't you? And I guess because my business was small, I didn't have the luxury of that. So for me, internships were always about what do you want to get from this and what do I want to get from it? And so prime example on Doorstep Gardener, Seb has just been working with me the last five six weeks he he had graduated is going off to uh, the mountains and had some time on his hands computer science um maths and further maths a level student 
And uh, he basically built our first AI model for Doorstep Gardener. Uh, and essentially, I said to him, what do you want to get from it? Right, I want to learn something. Okay, well, I'm on this accelerator. So why don't you come and join me on the accelerator? You can learn and let's aim to build something. And we did. Likewise, Charlie, who did an internship with us in film, he worked for like two weeks. We gave him some experience and then he was good enough that now I give him paid work and I've kind of given him a, a bit of a kick and introduced him to other people. And yeah, I think the creative sector, helping people, is that balance between giving someone a start and giving them an opportunity, but not sort of handing it to them on a plate because it is a highly competitive industry as well. And actually, if you're lazy and you don't want to work hard, you won't succeed. But if I can see that someone is, is a grafter and passionate and driven, I'm all for giving people opportunities and trying to help them on their way if I can. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I think, that, that, you know, everyone kind of needs that. And I think I, I got it. And I think almost if you've had that experience yourself, you almost want to pass it on to others because there's nothing worse than, than knocking on a lot of doors and they're all closed. And especially like you say, when, you know, someone's a runner, but they're, they're working as a composer for you, you know, so gone from, from, from running down and getting some lattes to composing some music. I mean, why go to Ravensbourne if you wanted to make coffees? You could have done that straight out of school. Do you know what I mean? It, it's an odd thing though, isn't it? If we may, kind of thinking about the future, I mean, obviously you've made, I don't know, I think it's drastic, but it's not drastic, is it? But you've made some some really positive steps that's really come out of the pandemic. And I think it's really good to hear that story. And I love hearing those those stories that people have, I don't want to say found themselves, but I think it's a really liberating thing, isn't it? Because like, you pointed out like that path and, and something you're passionate about. And obviously the business is moving in the right direction at speed in the right way. You've got the right kind of people. I'm still jealous of your background being in Ibiza. So where do you see things now, both business and personally, and, and how you've taken almost that inflection point that came from uh, the pandemic and used that as a positive, it has become a positive. And where do you see it heading now? Yeah, I mean, I'm so we're working on this pivot of Dorset Gardener. We're we're in this kind of lean startup, iterate and learn kind of stage. We're, we're getting some funding in place to build version one of what we're doing. I'm feeling super ambitious and driven actually at the moment. I want this to be a well-known success to do really well in the UK. I, I would love to do it in other places across Europe. So I'm feeling very energized to push forward and, and make a success. And I, and I think maybe subliminally underneath, there's a feeling personally that I haven't achieved success yet in terms of my metric of success. I've built a reputation. I'm good at what I do. I know I have been successful, but for me personally, I still haven't really nailed it. And maybe that goes back to when I first started, you know, I got a job on this graduate scheme and that's meant to be a start of a glittering career. And then eight months later, I'm out the door. And so, um, yeah, I'm feeling very positive about leveraging this place. I mean, one of the blessings of being in Ibiza is to be surrounded by people who are big thinkers who are trying to do bold things. I feel very blessed to be in a community. I work from a co-working space here, the hub that is just full of amazing people. So I feel like I'm in the right place to have the guidance and support myself to move forward um, and to, yeah, to make a real success of this business. And I sort of like the fact that, you know, I said a number of times my son is five years old. I kind of like the fact that in five years time, if you asked him what I did, he, he wouldn't even know I was a video guy or a creative director. He'd be like, oh yeah, dad's a 
a plant guy. <laughs> He's all about plants. Um, I kind of, I kind of like the idea of building up that identity and um, and becoming well known for it. But uh, that 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 is both fulfilling and exciting. Yeah, and I think I think it's there's a few things there. I think one is it sounds like some some unfinished business. I, th- I think like o- almost I think we're quite similar like that. I remember once um, I was in the kitchen uh, and I, I thought I was doing quite well for myself. And my father-in-law had a really stern chat with me and said, "You've massively underachieved." That's what he said to me, and uh, I thought it was really offensive. And I absolutely flared up and said to him, "You know, I, I, I've, I'm the youngest person who's ever done this in London, and I've got this much money." Blah 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 blah. And then only now. Or, or maybe a year ago or so, I realised that he was right. You know, it's like, I've got so much more to go and so much, you know, and I think um, it, it's good. I think that's a, a, a really important point and, and kind of have that ambition and, and, and achieve, that's that sense that you can achieve all that you've set out to achieve that you wanted to and that kind of unfinished business. And it's, and it's really good to hear that you've got the community and the people around you because again, so often we hear on this podcast the importance of being in the right environment. Again, I had someone who said, you want to be successful, surround yourself by success, you know. And I think um, being in the right environment, especially as, like you say, an accelerator, seed, hub, all of those things, sounds, sounds there's a lot, lot of positivity there. Yeah, I mean, I'm very blessed with what I've got here. But if someone was listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I've got this idea, but I haven't got that. There are loads of things like that that are available that cost absolutely nothing. And there are all these tools. I mean, we're building the future of Doorstep Gardener in a no-code approach. I mean, you we're using Bubble, for example, which allows you to build an app for a couple of thousand pounds that literally two, three years ago would have cost you 30,000 pounds. So the tools are there. As I said, with our original business, Squarespace, you can get... There's no reason why you couldn't have an idea and you couldn't have it up and running tomorrow. No reason. And that kind of scrappy, give it a go, get it started and fix it as you go. That's the right way to go. Um, so don't overthink things. Don't just give it a go. What's the worst that could happen if it doesn't work out? Move on something else. Yeah. So, <laughs> Really, really interesting story. Lots of brilliant advice. I'm personally feeling really positive. I, th- I think there's there's no doubt in my mind that Doorstep Gardener is going to be a success. I think it's a it's a fantastic idea, and um, I think the technology piece of that will really start to to, to make things happen. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, <laughs> to share with you. So effectively, come March, we'll be we'll be launching, and I don't think I've really said effectively we're building a a garden personality assessment process. That helps you to define your your personality, which allows us to curate a customized collection of plants. And um, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm super excited to see what you think when we when we've actually got something to show well, you yeah, in a couple yeah, of months. Yeah, ne- ne- I don't think it's ever been done before, to my knowledge, and <laughs> something that, that 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 is so needed. So, so I think uh, anyone listening to this in March. Check it out right now. Uh, any, anyone <laughs> listening to this when it came out in December, check it out in, a, in, in the next few months. And, and also, obviously, um, if, if you've enjoyed Ashley's story, which I'm sure you, you have, like, please reach out to him. I'm sure we'd be uh, more than happy to connect. Yeah, if I can help anyone, anyone needs any advice, find me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to help. And that wraps up another episode of the Evolve podcast. I hope you've taken inspiration and learned something from this week's interview. And I'd love to see you here next week. So please do subscribe. If you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing at Evolve, be sure to check us out by visiting goevolve.co.uk. 
And finally, remember, in business and in life, you never stop evolving. See you next week. (laughs) 